Section 4 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 10, May 1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Is Climatic Aridity Impending on the Pacific Slope? Continued. The Humid Regions from the subhumid tracts, we come to the humid ones. These are chiefly limited to the mountain regions. When they extend into the plains or into areas of lower humidity, they do so only in the bottoms or on the northern slopes of deep canyons or the northern slopes of ridges. On the other hand, it is everywhere noticeable that the subhumid areas send long, strong lobes and extensions into the humid tracts, carrying their characteristic trees with them and indicating the coming ascendancy of drier climatic conditions. The trees which compose the forests in this zone group themselves into three divisions, according to their altitudinal range, the first group, occupying the higher elevations, contains the following species. Larxis lyolii, Lyle larch. Pinus albicollis, white bark pine. Suga patenii, mountain hemlock. The second group contains species which most generally occupy areas at the lowest elevations in the zone, they are Thuja placata, Pacific arbor vitae, Larix occidentalis, Western larch, Suga mertensiana, Western hemlock, Pinus monticola, Mountain white pine. The third group contains species which range indiscriminately from the upper to the lower areas of the humid zone and are as follows. Abies lasiocarpa, alpine fir. Picea engelmani, engelman spruce. Pinus muriana, lodgepole pine. Of the species included in this group, the alpine fir possesses the least power of adaptability, the lodgepole pine the highest. In addition to the species enumerated, there are the following whose behavior as to altitudinal extensions and limitations are not very thoroughly known. They are Libocedrus decurrens, incense cedar, Camisicurus newt catensis, yellow cedar, Abies ambulus, Ambulus fir, Abies nobilis, noble fir, Abies shastensis, shasta fir, Pinus flexilis, limber pine, Pinus lambertiana, sugar pine. With the exception of the limber pine, most of these species are, in these regions, confined to the Cascades and do not extend very far from the high upper slopes of the range. Only the sugar pine and incense cedar come into contact with regions of sub-humidity. I have already noted that strong and broad projections from the sub-humid areas push far into the humid belts. This is most marked along deeply eroded valleys where high summer temperatures prevail. Not only do the subhumid conditions become conspicuous in the humid belts along such lines, 
but one meets occasionally spots of true aridity in their midst. Such localities present the anomalous spectacle of permanently deforested areas supporting species of grasses and other herbaceous plants peculiar to the arid plains at subalpine altitudes and in regions where the situation seemingly should ensure an abundance of precipitation. Excellent examples of these phases are seen in the Bitterroot Forest Reserve in Idaho. This region lies within an area of sufficiently heavy precipitation to be generally classed as humid above the 5,000 feet level, but arid and subhumid conditions have extended up the Clearwater and Salmon River valleys in places reaching the main range and overleaping this barrier have joined the arid regions of the interior Rocky Mountain basins. The subhumid and semi-arid conditions have spread upward from the valley bottoms along the mountain slopes to elevations of 6,000 feet to 7,000 feet, carrying their peculiar shrubs and trees with them. We cannot account for the permanency of these arid and semi-arid extensions except by adopting the proposition that a progressive diminution of the annual precipitation is now an established and general climactic feature in this region. Coexistent with the advance of drier climatic conditions into the humid areas, we find, as already noted, many of the trees and shrubs of the semi-arid and subhumid tracts, while the entire forest has been profoundly disturbed in its equilibrium. Among the shrubs of the arid and semi-arid regions which have thus penetrated into the humid areas may be mentioned Cyrocarpus letifolius, Cusnea tridentia, Artismia tridentia, Artismia abiscula, and one or two species of Forcelsia. These shrubs abound on the arid regions of the plains to which they properly belong. They are found following the subhumid areas into the humid ones in the Bitterroots, in the Rocky Mountains, and in the Cascades. Their presence and distribution here proves unmistakably progressive semi-aridity into the subhumid tracts, subhumid extensions into the humid areas. In the semi-arid belt, we noted the occurrence of detached aggregates and scattered individuals of its forest growth separated from the main body by deforested lanes and wide stretches. They were taken to represent the effects of a gradual invasion of the adjacent arid conditions, creating a sort of fringe or frayed edge of timber growth along the edge of the forest. If our ideas of progressively drier conditions extending throughout the different belts of humidity are in accordance with facts, we have a right to expect analogous phenomena in the humid and subhumid areas. That is exactly what we find, but they differ from those which exist in the arid and semi-arid region in this way that the edge of the advancing semi-aridity into the subhumid tracts and the front of the subhumidity where it penetrates into the humid areas are not typically marked by deforested openings. Instead, 
They present detached groups of the species which belong to the upper and more humid tracts of each of the zones, entirely surrounded by heavy bodies of the kinds which belong to the lower zones and which are capable of withstanding greater dryness. In examining the phenomena of forest growth in the humid areas as changed or in process of modification by the shifting climatic conditions, we can find no localities within these regions that present the various phases so clearly and indisputably as does the west slope of the Bitterroot Mountains. This area is truly a debatable ground. Its forest growth is subject to great and extensive stress. On the east, from the arid conditions of the Rocky Mountain regions, on the west, from those which prevail on the treeless plains of the Columbia River Plateau. It is seamed, furrowed, and crossed in various places by extensions from those two great tracks. At the same time, it contains very large areas of extremely humid slopes where the drying effects of the changing climate are as yet scarcely felt, if at all. These conditions provide numerous transition grounds for the study of the forest modifications. Beginning with the group of summit trees, as they might be called, we have three species which are in the Pacific Northwest true timberline trees. Nowhere, however, in the Bitterroots do these species form a timberline zone, for no peak in the range is high enough to reach it. As summits exist 10,150 feet in height above sea level, it follows that the absolute timberline is here phenomenally high, a significant fact in connection with the wide extensions of subhumid and semi-arid conditions into the interior of this range and a possible consequent rise of the mean annual temperature. The absence of a timberline even at the highest peaks was noted and commented upon by the various parties engaged in the first surveys for a northern transcontinental railroad route, but was generally ascribed to the effects produced by a current of warm air supposed to move eastward from the plains of the Columbia in this latitude. None of the three species contained in the summit group of trees possesses any marked power of adaptation. The Lyle larch is wholly deficient in this respect. The whitebark pine ranks slightly higher and the mountain hemlock somewhat above the latter, as shown by its occurrence within undoubted subhumid conditions in some localities, as in the middle portion of the Deschutes Basin in Oregon. In the Bitterroots, we find the Lyle Larch along the high crests of the main range from a point just north of Nez Perce Pass to an as yet undetermined northern point. However, it does not go very far beyond the ridges which bound the north fork of Clearwater Basin. It is found on both the east and west slopes of the range, extending three to four miles away from the crest on either side. The western spurs of the range present one or two outlying small groves of the species on the divide between the Locksaw and Selway forks. 
its habitats in the Bitterroot Range are absolutely cut off from all connection with others elsewhere by gaps of low altitudes a hundred miles or more in width, which now cannot possibly be spanned by the species. In these regions, this larch is clearly approaching extinction. Its cone and seed production are extremely scanty. Its growth is excessively slow. Most of the individuals which make up the stands are far advanced in age. Seedlings or saplings are rare and scattered. No farther back than three centuries there must have been abundant seed production, as a majority of the trees are approximately of this age. Three centuries hence, the stands, if existing at all, will show great diversity of age, unless the cone-bearing periods run in cycles, long intervals of barrenness being followed by periods of fertility. Whatever rotation may exist in this respect, and that some does occur admits of no doubt, it operates only within narrow limits of time, producing what are called off years, and does not impress itself very strongly upon the stand of the species as a whole. Passing to the white bark pine, we find it extending all over the ridges and spurs of the bitterroots having elevations above 6,000 feet. On the north, the range of trees is intercepted by the valleys of the Clark Fork and the Bitterroot River. On the south, it follows the crest of the ridges into the Rocky Mountains. The species is lacking in vigor and is not maintaining its former stands. It is a conspicuously shy cone producer throughout all this region. The staminate blossoms, or aments, are born in the greatest profusion, but the pistillate are very rare. In consequence, but few cones are seen, and the seedlings, while not wholly absent, are very sparse and scattered. The mountain hemlock occurs on the ridges above 5,500 feet elevation throughout the central areas of the Bitterroot system. It is cut off on all sides from connection with the species elsewhere by wide stretches where it is wholly lacking. In the northern portion of its range, it is an abundant cone and seed producer and is maintaining the average densities of its stands. Its southern boundary in this region lies along the crest which separates the north and middle forks of Clearwater. All along this southern edge, it abuts upon the subhumid tracks which spread upwards along the slopes of the low-lying valley of the middle or Locksaw Fork of the Clearwater. A low ratio of cone and seed-bearing capacity marks the southern edge of its range, and its seedlings are far from sufficient in number to keep the stands at their maximum density. Throughout the entire Bitterroot region, the declining vitality of the species is indicated by its small cones, which do not average one-half of the normal size for the more vigorous type of the species. The habit of the three summit species is inimical to survival under very great stress of subhumidity. Their place of growth is invariably on drained slopes. If through adaptation they should acquire the power to grow in wet or saturated soil, they would stand a far better chance of survival, but no evidence exists of any such modifications.
Below the summit group of trees are the species of the second group. Among these, the western larch possesses the greatest power of adaptation. Next, the mountain white pine, and then the Pacific arbor vitae, and last, the western hemlock. The western larch is able to endure subhumid conditions which, in places, almost border on semi-aridity. Of the trees distinctly belonging to the humid areas, it is the last to retreat before the advancing line of climatic cication. All these species are at home in wet or swampy localities and are therefore better fitted for a lengthy resistance than would otherwise be the case. Their northward range extends indefinitely to the limits where the mean temperature becomes too low for their growth. Their southward boundary in the Bitterroot region lies a few miles north of a line drawn east and west through the crest of the divide which separates the Salmon River from the Clearwater drainage. Northeastward, they cross the Bitterroots into the Rocky Mountain Ranges, while in the northwest they extend through the mountains between the Fraser River and the Columbia into the Cascades. Owing to the circumstances already mentioned that the species can exist in swampy ground, they hold their own against the subhumid encroachments everywhere but along their southern edge. Their retreat here is marked, exactly as in the case of other species, by deficient cone and seed production and by the occurrence of detached bodies of the species along the line of retreat. The third group of the humid series of trees contains species whose adaptability to varying altitude and moisture conditions is of the highest. This is owing to their capacity for enduring very diverse habitats. They are equally at home on dry, well-drained slopes or in wet places where their roots are continually immersed in circulating water. Among the three, the lodgepole pine has the greatest endurance, and all appearances indicate that it is the species which eventually will supplant the other species in the humid regions. The alpine fir ranges throughout the entire extent of the Bitterroot Mountains and extends indefinitely north and south, east and west, along the crests of connecting ridges. It is a fair producer of cones and seeds and is maintaining its stands in most localities. Its susceptibility to adverse subhumid conditions is found in the occurrence of large deforested tracts occupied by the tree within comparatively recent times, but which now show no evidence of a return to forest cover. Such tracts are frequent everywhere throughout its range in these regions. Generally, they front on some broad valley along whose slopes the subhumid or semi-arid changes are advancing into the mountains. The Engelmann spruce and the lodgepole pine have a universal range throughout the mountains in this region. Both have developed forms to meet drier conditions. Engelmann spruce never reaches its greatest development except in swampy localities where it grows to be a large, well-formed tree. On dry ridges, it exists as a small, knotty, branchy, undersized tree. The lodgepole pine follows the same general rule. The reproduction of these two species is excellent, and they are constantly occupying new ground to the exclusion of the other species.
The forest fires which ravage the mountains show how closely balanced are the majority of the humid species and how slim a hold they possess on existence along the front line of the spreading subhumidity. It is a fact patent to everyone who studies the after-effect of a forest fire in this region that the increased evaporation from the denuded surfaces causes intense soil aridity. This condition is not alike in all places. Some localities, by reasons of local topography or exposure, suffer more severely than others. There are thus on south-facing hillsides near the larger valleys numerous places where centuries ago the subalpine forest was destroyed by fire and arid conditions set in to the extent of absolutely preventing reforestation to this day. But in the majority of cases, the first burning of the forest destroys only the more tender species and favors the growth of those which possess greater powers of adaptability. This, in the humid areas, means a preponderance of the lodgepole pine because of its wide limit of tolerance to different climatic conditions. Fires in the humid growths hardly ever destroy the forest completely over any very large area. Small patches are left untouched, though surrounded by wide lanes of burned forest. The growth of lodgepole pine, which comes in after the fires because better fitted than any other species to endure soil aridity, follows the denuded areas and often covers them with dense stands. In so doing, it cuts off these slices of unburned forests from all chance of regaining their former connection with the main body of their own type of growth and gives rise to conditions which are somewhat analogous to those in the semi-arid belts where deforested areas supporting types of vegetation peculiar to arid regions separate the outlying groves of forest. It is not alone in the region of the Columbia River watershed that the increasing climatic aridity is modifying or disturbing the forest types and their ancient balance. The same phenomena are repeated in California and are doubtless general throughout the Rocky Mountains and the areas collectively termed the Pacific Coast. A conspicuous example occurs in Southern California in the behavior of the big cone fir, Pseudotsuga macrocarpa, and the redwood, Sequoia sempervirens. The big cone fir is a common species on the slopes of the mountain ranges in Southern California. On the west slopes of the San Bernardino and San Jacinto ranges, its main body of growth is above the 4,000 feet contour line. Below this, the tree thins out rapidly and at elevations of 3,000 feet practically ceases. In the San Gabriel Mountains, it begins to grow at elevations of 1,000 feet above sea level. At 3,000 feet, it forms very numerous groves in the midst of the chaparral. Now there are the clearest evidences that not very far back in time, a nearly uniform forest of this species covered many of the slopes of the San Gabriel Mountains between the 2,000 feet and 3,000 feet contour levels. The numerous single trees and old stumps in the chaparral are the remnants of this growth. Moreover, 
When the big cone fir is burned out on the slopes below the 4,000 feet level, neither it nor any other species of conifers reforest the denuded areas, showing that conditions exist which are inimical to forest growth. In the San Bernardino and San Jacinto ranges, the lower edge of the big cone fir forest is tolerably compact and well-defined. The outlying patches on the slopes that one sees so frequently in the San Gabriel are lacking. The extensions from the main body of growth are along the streams and gorges where abundant moisture exists. The San Bernardino and San Jacinto Mountains are farther from the ocean than the San Gabriel. Hence, for the same elevations, they do not receive so heavy a precipitation and have, in consequence, a higher limit for the lower edge of the range of the Big Cone Fir. The San Gabriel Mountains, being nearer the ocean, receive a greater precipitation, hence have an ulterior limit for the inferior edge of the Big Cone Fir at a considerably lower elevation than the other two ranges. But the lack of reforestation on areas where the growth is destroyed and the many detached patches below the main body of growth prove that the species is retreating toward regions of greater humidity. As the process is aided and accelerated by forest fires of modern date, another generation will not pass before the lower limit for the growth of the tree in the San Gabriel Mountains will be at quite as high altitude as it is in the San Bernardino and San Jacinto Ranges. In comparison with the allied northern Pseudotsuda mucratata, or red fir, the species is more definite in cone and seed production. The redwood is a tree of extreme susceptibility to temperature and humidity conditions and apparently possesses a very low ratio of adaptability. It ranges along the California coast from Los Angeles County to the northern boundary of the state and across into Oregon. At its extreme southern end, it is represented by small scattered groups of trees. A few hundred individuals only are reported, and a long gap intervenes before its appearance farther north. The heaviest stands of the species are found in Mendocino and Humboldt counties in California. It thins out toward the Oregon line and finally disappears a few miles north of the boundary. The northward extension of the species is evidently limited by a mean annual temperature lower than its ultimate point of endurance. Southern extensions are impossible owing to an insufficiency of rainfall in that section of California, and its spread into the interior away from the proximity of the ocean is precluded by adverse conditions of both temperature and humidity. The reproduction of the species is said to be very low. Cut-over areas show no evidence of reforestation with the same species. Thus hemmed in by inimical climatic conditions and unable to maintain its stands, its extinction seems assured at no very remote period. Summary the salient points brought out by a study of the forest conditions in these regions so far as they relate to the effects of climatic aridity can be stated concisely as follows. 
The arid, non-forested plains regions of eastern Oregon yield silicified remains of arborescent vegetation identical or nearly so with existing species on adjacent areas, proving the presence of forest growth on these timberless lands at no very remote period. The forests on the semi-arid tracks, although consisting of species capable of enduring dry climatic conditions, show everywhere a persistent and gradual dwindling in extent and density. Their stands, consisting mostly of old trees, show a conspicuous deficiency in seed production, an enormous percentage of the ovules aborting, and a notable scarcity of seedlings. When, from any cause, a tract of the old stands is deforested, reforestation does not occur as a rule. This results in the formation of detached groves and individuals whose reproductive powers become even more limited and weakened, and the extinction of which is merely a matter depending on the age limit of the individual trees. In the subhumid forest, there is a slow and apparently ineffectual adaptation evolution of smaller forms of the various species to replace the larger ones, which require more moisture for their growth. There is also a conspicuous shortage of cone and seed production in the group of trees which form the upper subhumid types and a pushing of the lower subhumid types which grow in drier atmospheric and soil conditions into the areas of the upper types and frequently a complete and permanent replacement of the upper subhumid types with those belonging to the lower groups when the upper types have been destroyed by fire or other means. In the humid forest are found the same phenomena as noted for the subhumid tracks, with areas in the upper humid belts where certain species occupy tracks separated by long distances, sometimes a hundred miles or more, from the next appearance of the species elsewhere. These intervals which break the continuity of the range of such species are held to indicate more humid conditions in the part favoring extensions across these gaps, which are now precluded and cut off by adverse climactic changes in the direction of aridity. End of Section 4